Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Owen McGee about his new biography of the Irish nationalist Arthur Griffith. Owen, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you, Mark. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Well, I'm a historian, and um, I have a background in writing about the history of Irish nationalism. Uh, I wrote a book on... Irish nationalism in the 19th century up until the beginning of a movement called Sinn Féin, uh, which has started in the beginning of the 20th century. And as sort of a good follow-on from that, uh, I decided to try and write a biography of Arthur Griffith because he was effectively the founder and uh, chief spokesman of the Sinn Féin movement up until the establishment of Irish independence in 1922. So um, uh, that's sort of, uh, you could say, is my uh, background and my interest in the subject. Uh, I've studied history for many years. Uh, I did a PhD in history, but I also worked uh, as an archivist and uh, uh, I worked in uh, libraries and museums for a while. So I've always been very interested in, in Irish history. Arthur Griffith seems to be a, a figure who doesn't enjoy the same degree of prominence as someone like, say, uh, Eamon de Valera or Michael Collins. And I was wondering if that was something that you uh, found was unwarranted given uh, your uh, research, as, as you were doing your research into the biography. Um. Perhaps, but I think uh, an issue with Arthur Griffith, certainly when compared to an individual like uh, Eamon de Valera or Michael Collins, is that he wasn't a very glamorous figure. Uh, Griffith was uh, respected by many contemporaries for what he wrote, but in politics, uh, he wasn't necessarily someone with great charisma. Um, And in an Irish context, uh, de Valera certainly had that. Uh, Michael Collins, to a significant degree, uh, although he was nearly more famous for his reputation uh, more than anything else, uh, sort of as a uh, freedom fighter or something like that. But uh, Arthur Griffith would belong uh, among those who effectively considered the the pen mightier than the sword. So he was was, uh, a leading spokesman for the independence movement. But he was uh, probably the least, the least uh, charismatic. And in reading your book, it really uh, comes across the degree to which how more important, if you will, or visible that role was was in the pre-independence period. Here I'm talking about the period of, of, of the British control over Ireland in, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries when uh, Griffith first establishes uh, his career. Yes, that's true, and um, I guess for uh, historians of Ireland, um, 
there can be a tendency to romanticize the uh, that period uh, leading up to independence. Uh, the same thing can apply really with the the history of uh, any country. Um, I'm sure in America, a lot of people like continue to pay attention to people like George Washington and the supposed founding fathers of the state. Uh, they may not have had uh, uh, great relevance in terms of what happened afterwards, but yet because they were seen as one of the founding fathers, uh, they're sort of larger than life figures. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, that that could certainly apply in terms of the reputation that uh, people like Griffith and Collins had. And of course, uh, even De Valera lived for many years afterwards. And um, he almost became an icon of the Irish state as a result because he was around for so long. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could speak a bit about Griffith's uh, uh, childhood and his family background because he doesn't come from very uh, uh, substantial circumstances. And he, and he has, as you describe, a, a, a career where he really has to, to struggle to establish himself early on. Uh, yes, that's very much true. I mean, he was uh, born in uh, the inner city of uh, Dublin, which is uh, Ireland's largest city, but it was very much a uh, depressed city at the time with great poverty. So, uh, for instance, um, Arthur Griffith's own father and I believe his uncle uh, both spent time in uh, workhouses, which were like the poor houses. Uh, for people who could not support themselves. His sister died of uh, tuberculosis, which was uh, contracted because of uh, um, the slum living conditions that he uh, he grew up uh, among. And that happened to some of his closest friends as well. So uh, poverty was a a major issue in, uh, I would say, Arthur Griffith's uh, life when he was growing up and into his uh, young adulthood and you could say right up until he uh, he earned sort of a, a name in uh, the political world for for uh, coming up with and writing his uh, pamphlet from book uh, the Sinn Fein policy. He started to get noticed then, and he had more of a career, or he started to have a career as the the editor of uh, weren't quite newspapers; they were more like reviews, you know, like uh, uh, there were weekly magazines in effect that covered all the the most topical issues of the day and the most notable books that were coming out and the most notable political ideas that people had. He became a figure in the whole, um, you know, you could call it like the Republic of Letters or whatever. Like he was, uh, uh, that's that's what sort of um, uh, allowed him to find a niche, I guess you could say, both in terms of uh, politics and also in the world of... um, the press, in effect, you know? The analogy that I had in my mind as I was reading the book, uh, since you referenced uh, America, the United States' own revolutionary history, is Benjamin Franklin, in the sense that Griffith doesn't really have much of an opportunity for an education, but he goes into printing, which, as you mentioned, his father, uh, whose name is also Arthur Griffith, uh, does yeah. as well, and how printing was for the working classes an opportunity to really develop oneself literarily. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Um, 
uh, it was uh, to some extent. You know, people have said that uh, uh, printers were nearly envied by uh, other, say, uh, working class people of the time for their levels of literacy and so on, but also for their capacity maybe to, um, through their mastery over the written word, or uh, to move in different circles within society. And uh, if they were well able to express themselves, uh, their intelligence would get recognized. So I suppose if you took somebody like Benjamin Franklin, uh, he had a... He was well known for writing uh, pamphlets or books like the the means and manner of obtaining virtue, mm-hmm. and in so doing, uh, people could see well this was a virtuous man in effect, or at least he knew what that idea meant, <laughs> and so people could uh, admire and respect him and maybe want to hear more of what he had to say. Mm-hmm. And in the same way, um, Griffith would be somebody who, through his uh, capacity to um, write and publish uh, he, 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 he earned uh, he earned a name or a reputation that most of uh, people of his social background simply did not have at that time Now was he pulled into printing or was he uh, pushed into it by his father I would say he was pushed into it by his father uh, I mean it's nearly a cliche to say, but at that time, uh, society was maybe very uh, patriarchal. It was like um, uh, like father, like son, and uh, particularly in the, the professions at all levels in society, you tended to have uh, people would literally follow the family trade, mm-hmm. the family profession. You know, a lot of doctors were sons of doctors. A lot of printers were sons of printers. It just seemed to uh, work that way. I guess primarily for the the issue of um, security, because if you were someone poor like Griffith was growing up, well, unless you had a trade, uh, you would uh, be nearly guaranteed to end up in the in the poorhouse. So um, uh, it it. it I wouldn't be inclined to say that it, uh, that stood to him, the, his training as a printer, so much as uh, the fact that uh, he was a, a self-educated figure who really uh, trained himself, or if that's the right word, nurtured himself as a writer. Uh, when he was young, he didn't necessarily write that well, but by virtue of the fact that he was a uh, uh, attempting to edit, edit uh, a weekly publication and write editorials every week and so on, he got better and better. And uh, partly as a result, uh, he was able to make better arguments or more influential arguments. And that uh, ties back into the importance of being a printer, which is you simply have the experience of, of writing and editing and composing, and that process is how you hone one skill as a writer, much in the same way that uh, any other, uh, so many other skills are more about practice and, 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 and development rather than some sort of innate genius. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. Yeah. Like he was uh, being grafted is a good phrase. You know, you learn by doing and uh, yeah, nobody's not, <laughs> nobody's as a natural born genius is an old saying, you know, it's all hard work. 
<laughs> yeah. The other thing that comes across uh, in your uh, chapter on his early years is, is how early he comes to his politics. And I was wondering if you could speak a bit to his involvement in uh, Irish nationalist politics during those teenage years. Where he seems to be not only active at an early age, but he seems to uh, attain positions of surprising prominence for someone who is you know, merely a teenager. Yeah, you could say that. Um, on the other hand, it's a, a curious uh, aspect of uh, Victorian society, you could say in Britain and Ireland, that um, one thing that people were encouraged to do uh, at an early age was to get involved in um, debating societies and the like uh, as a means of um, well, developing their abilities maybe after they had left school or while they were still attending school. And the strange thing perhaps about them is that they were organized uh almost like political clubs. For instance, if there was a debate to be held and you were to chair the debate, it might have been on a political subject or people might have to actually have to play, uh, do kind of role-playing. Um, okay, you're the prime minister this week and what do you say about this is- issue? So uh, that was actually um, something that was common when Griffith was growing up in the 1880s and 1890s uh, in Britain and Ireland. Uh, partly because I think it was, at the, or you could say it was around that time, partly uh, due to the uh, growth of the press, uh, you had new newspapers being set up, particularly for working people and so on in the 1880s. That, uh, so, and the politicians of the day, really for the first time, started to become like celebrities. Everyone had some opinion on politics and so on, because everyone knew who the leading politicians were that you could, when you had sort of a debating society set up, they were uh, almost like uh, political speaking clubs. And uh, that, that was had a, a role in society at that time, almost like, uh, say, the equivalent of a prominent politician having um, become a prominent member of a debating society if he went to a college or university. It was the same skill exercised in a different uh, forum. Uh, and it could have been a it can be it could have been a ladder to get into politics, uh, usually through the, the field of journalism, in effect, or uh, maybe local politics. Like you know, it wouldn't necessarily make you a political leader, but it certainly gets you involved in the could get you involved in the political process. And that's sort of what happened in Griffith's case. And yet, as you describe, the environment of local politics was very different than it was in Great Britain during this time. And you uh, spend a uh, considerable amount of space in your book describing that context, given that it's very important to understand how Britain developed. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about it as well. What was going on in terms of Irish nationalist politics and also uh, the constraints that uh, not just Griffith, but, but other Irish nationalists faced in terms of promoting their cause, both in the political realm and in the practical realm of local governance, which was uh, which was much more restricted than it was at that time in uh, in Victorian Britain. Yes, you could say that certainly. Um, and it would have been, I think, in eighteen eighty eight. Now a law was passed in Britain, which meant that uh, 
a significant percentage of the, the Treasury's funds would be reinvested in uh, municipal or city governments and county governments, all for the sake of uh, developing um, towns uh, in Britain. Many uh, historic towns actually became cities just at that time period as a direct result of that process. But that, um, that same legislation did not apply within Ireland. And for somebody like Griffith, who grew up in Dublin, which had been like a, uh, in the past uh, a home of an Irish parliament and something like a capital city, the fact that it had become a depressed city and also had been um, denied uh, this sort of uh, level of funding from a, uh, a central government was one of his certainly one of his uh, great motives to be uh, in favour of uh, the setting up of an Irish government. And um, you could say, too, from that uh, basis that uh, for, say, people who are growing up in uh, more rural areas in Ireland, um, they weren't necessarily, even if they could understand that same principle about maybe lack of funding uh, for things in Ireland, they weren't necessarily as preoccupied uh, uh, with sort of national political questions. And so... Uh, Griffith's perspective was very much shaped by his uh, uh, standing as a, uh, a someone from Dublin or a Dubliner, and uh, you know. But in the countryside, people might not have been on exactly the same uh, wavelength when it came to politics. Uh, Griffith, to them, might have seemed almost like a, you know a Dublin patriot rather than being a. a the sort of Irish nationalists that they would identify with, because his, his worldview was very much shaped by uh, uh, the fact that he was from Dublin and uh, wanted it to become uh, a prosperous capital city of Ireland once more. That, that was the dimension of his life that I, I must confess I had, I had not been aware of before I read your book, which was the degree to which he was not just an Irish patriot, but very much of, of, a, of a Dublin patriot, and it, it was very uh, had a very deep and a, a love for his uh, for his, the city in which he grew up. Yeah, and that's partly why um, the well-known writer uh, James Joyce, who uh, wrote his first uh, collection of short stories and entitled it uh, Dubliners, uh, Joyce, on leaving Dublin, uh, he used to subscribe to Griffith's publication. Uh, he kind of identified with the arguments that were written, that uh, Griffith published. So. All through the years that uh, James Joyce, say, was living in Paris, he was a subscriber to Griffith's uh, review, and uh, that kind of was his connection to what was going on back in Ireland. And of course, Joyce was from Dublin too, so he kind of maybe uh, knew or identified uh, uh, with, with some of Griffith's arguments for that uh, reason. And, uh, even when he came to write his famous Ulysses novel, uh, the character Leo Bloom, uh, you know, there's some hints in there that he's he's in some way closely associated to Arthur Griffith's circle in Dublin, uh, uh, a sort of a, an underclass of uh, uh, let's see, I, I suppose this fits into the Irish uh, the the subject of Irish nationalism. Uh, there was a sense in Ireland at the time that you had a lot of these uh, people could have been living in Dublin who were uh, very intelligent, uh, well-educated, even if they were possibly just uh, self-educated. But they lived in a um, 
sort of uh, in an atmosphere of frustration because it was like as if they had talents and they weren't didn't have a uh, uh, a means to use them or an outlet to use them. And it, then, partly from that, people that trend in Irish society, uh, people associate Arthur Griffith with uh, the type of person who. Uh, in response to that situation, was uh, saying, well, Irish independence automatically will be a cure for all these problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that sort of built up an expectation then when Griffith later became uh, pro- prominent, uh, where he was going to f- be able to fulfill those types of promises. And uh, uh, that was uh, easier said than done. <laughs> it was, uh, uh, another level, was that sense of the... Uh, inability to uh, attain opportunities, a factor in why uh, he traveled uh, to South Africa uh, at the uh, end of the century? Yeah, there's there was a number of different stories uh, which were effectively rumors uh, as to why he went to South Africa in his late 20s. And um, none of them can actually be verified because he never actually formally, you know, stated or put it in writing oh, I went to South Africa for this reason. But I think it's pretty clear that uh, poverty was the issue. Uh, And he went to South Africa right before the outbreak of the Boer War, and there was uh, the Anglo-Boer War, that is, and there was... uh, The rumour was, and fairly well-founded rumour, that there was a lot of money to be made in um, South Africa at that time. So you have people both from in Ireland and in Britain who went to South uh, Africa in the 1890s um, as uh, basically hoping to be able to make some money. And uh, uh, yeah, so that uh, in Griffith's case, that would be uh, to to escape from poverty. He he uh, he he worked in South Africa just as a a foreman in. Um, in a gold mine. It wouldn't have been paid very well, but he actually acquired uh, his first editorial experience in South Africa uh, for some small local paper. He was only involved with that for a few months, but it, it would have given him a, a, a good sense of what it was like to be directly involved in the newspaper business. And it was, In fact, it was after he came back from South Africa that for the first time he set up his own uh, newspaper or review. Uh, th- that was one of the things that really stood out for me was 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 how that was in a sense an opportunity that he may not have had at quite that young of an age in Ireland in the sense of being able to do that for himself. And as you point out, it didn't necessarily end very well for him. You, you described the the incident that led to uh, uh, his uh, dismissal and 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 uh, you know brought his help to bring his uh, time in South Africa to an early end. Yeah. Yeah. And another strange, um, or a strange thing about that situation would be that um, the means that he had to get to South uh, Africa, um, he sort of was able to um, work through sort of a number of Irish clubs that um, existed both in in South Africa and in uh, Ireland. These sort of uh, Irish clubs would have been... um, at the time, they, they effectively existed directly because of the existence of the, the British Empire. In effect, wherever the empire had spread, Irish people could end up living there. 
just like the way English people might be living there. But the um, but these Irish clubs tended to be also mixed up with uh, sort of a revolutionary underground, mm-hmm. and that was sort of uh, the, the initial platform uh, that Griffith became uh, associated with. There was an underground movement that was later responsible for the 1916 rising called the Irish Republican Brotherhood, or IRB. And Griffith was mixed up in that from an early age. And in effect, as reflected by his friendship with, uh, or later friendship with Michael Collins, who was the last leader of the IRB uh, when they both died in 1922, he, he sort of maintained that association all along. So I don't know if you would say that meant he was on the the left of Irish politics at the time, or some right or whatever, but he was on the um, sort of the revolutionary margins, uh, sort of a nationalist revolutionary, uh, uh, the the revolutionary nationalist wing of uh, Irish public opinion at the time. That's the way Griffith's contemporaries uh, would have have identified him. That was sort of the place that uh, that he occupied within Irish political debate uh, up until and after the formation of uh, Sinn Féin, that was in 1905. I'd like to talk a bit about after he comes back to Ireland in uh, 1898 and how how he quickly begins to uh, involve himself in both editing and, and turning his editorship to a platform for Irish politics. You, you've been talking a bit about these journals that he's been editing. I was wondering if you could uh, walk us through his uh, his early journals and their prominence and, their, their, and, and, and whom their audience was. Right. Well, his first journal uh, was called The United Irishman, and it was set up in 1899. And it, at that time, was effectively... Um, secretly the organ of the IRB revolutionary underground. Uh, and it was quite small in its uh, early years. Um, it opposed the British war effort in South Africa during the Boer War. Uh, that made it sort of a, a controversial organ. Um, and it sort of, it took off uh, around, around, um, or it became more noticed around uh, 1904. Um, That was the time when uh, Griffith published a series of articles in the United Irishman that then um, was reprinted as a book that sold very well uh, called uh, The Resurrection of Hungary. And the the key thing about that was was its argument that what uh, Irish nationalists would need to do in order to claim independence, was to withdraw its political representatives from the Imperial Parliament in Westminster and effectively uh, unilaterally set up uh, an Irish Parliament in Dublin and uh, force Britain to recognise in the process that Ireland was a historic and distinct kingdom in itself or a distinct nation in itself and it had a right to the self-government because... um, uh, and that's in the, that's that also uh, essentially became the basis of the the Sinn Fein policy, uh, which its distinguishing feature was it, it justified the same argument 
uh, almost entirely from a, an economic point of view. And uh, once Arthur Griffith started making those arguments, he launched a new journal uh, called Sinn Féin, uh, and that remained in print right up until the outbreak of the First World War in 1914. He doesn't seem to have had a very uh, large audience, as you as you point out that it, that sometimes his press runs were uh, roughly a thousand, and his audience, his target audience, seemed to have been really very focused on men who were like him. Uh, these, as you described, these bookish members of the working class, and, and yet he, as you point out, James Joyce. Uh, read his uh, read, read his journal. Uh, was that a reflection of his uh, of his arguments, or was that a reflection of his writing style? What exactly you know allowed him to attain that that degree of prominence? Um, well, I think in uh, if you think of uh, these publications as uh, review publications, where they were like. Um, they might have, they might have had some good original material in them, and at the same time, they would have been a review of uh, all other notable publications at the time. Uh, these uh, publications wouldn't necessarily have, or they certainly weren't printed weren't printed in the same number of copies as commercial newspapers of the day. You know, they could. Uh, I'm not sure about the exact number of figures, but you know, could be tens of thousands and so on. Uh, they would have been um, uh, more successful publications and ones that uh, more people would have read. But um, I think the very fact that Griffith's publications were reviews, um, that they weren't just uh, the uh, reports of uh, the regular news items of the day, that gave them uh, an appeal to to people who uh, uh, were fond of reading uh, similar types of journals. Uh, for instance, at the time, say if Griffith's publications were only printed in one or two thousand copies, well, a lot of those copies uh, might have been, writ- been read uh, uh, by university students at the time who might otherwise be, you know, buying the, the college journal or looking up academic journals. Whether they uh, identified with Griffith's arguments or not, uh, it'd be very hard to say, but the very fact that the the format of his publication, uh, it was a sort of uh, item that uh, people might have been inclined, or those people might have been inclined to read anyway. So I'd say, as you mentioned, um, his his principal audience might have been like the the bookish section of uh, the working uh, class population, but I'd say. You could have people right across the the literary world or the academic world or whatever. Um, they could, they probably were familiar with the, with his publication, read it fairly frequently, and so on. So, so somebody like another well known figure, apart from James Joyce, would have been W. B. Yeats, and uh, he used to read Griffith's publication and he'd follow its arguments, and it had become a uh, in a subject point then of debate in his own circles, you know, they might they mightn't have agreed with Griffin, but they'd be talking about uh, what he had written or what had appeared in this publication, and uh, were considering uh, 
whether that was an indication of uh, a new direction for public opinion in the country. It's interesting you should mention Yates because I, I, was, I was struck by uh, going to the literary side about how it, one of the things about a review journal versus a commercial journal is that it, they, they tend to bear more of the imprint of the editor. He tends to have more of a, of a wide-ranging uh, influence on what's printed and, and oftentimes what's written. You mentioned that he tended to steer away from art, uh, but... In the uh, in 1907, he comes out against uh, the Playboy of the Western World, which was uh, it was a, that was a J.M. Sign. It was uh, it, it was it was a very controversial play at the time, and you would think that you know, on the one hand, as you mentioned, being a man of the left, uh, Griffith would support it, and yet Griffith was part of this moral condemnation about it. And you also, and what I thought was fascinating about it was how you tie it to his personal life, in his uh, courtship with. Uh, his wife, this very extended courtship that you described. I was wondering if you could talk a, a bit about that and, and how that influenced him, his, his relationship with, uh, with uh, his, at the time, you know, long-standing girlfriend and, and, and how that, uh, and, and, and that aspect of his life that was very, I don't want to say quite say stunted, but, but definitely uh, limited. Yeah. Um, well, I'd say if you wanted to contrast Griffith's uh, background or upbringing with that of the, the woman who became his uh, wife. His wife came from uh, a much more kind of middle class background and a much more uh, sort of religious background. And uh, Griffith, uh, I wouldn't describe him as having ever been a, an anti-religious figure, but uh, like a lot of uh, working class people in Britain and Ireland in the Victorian times and afterwards, uh, it sort of, for, for material uh, reasons, in effect, it become very uh, disenchanted with uh, organised religion to a significant degree. Uh, you know, the, the popularity of the Church of England, say, in England, went uh, down the tubes nearly in the mid to late Victorian period. Uh, ordinary people sort of came more distant from religion. And say, so what's what's that got to do with? Uh, uh, the issues you described there. Well, uh, in a, uh, as first of all, I would say with Griffith and his relationship with his wife is that uh, because she was uh, so religious, he was uh, hoping to uh, uh, develop a good relationship there. He had to be uh, very uh, tolerant and respectful of her opinions and uh, maybe nurture whatever sort of religious sense he had himself. I think that was a factor in their uh, relationship. And then uh, outside of that, you could say that, uh, I mean, it's nearly uh, a cliche to say in Ireland that, uh, or to, for people to say about Ireland that, uh, you know, religion nearly played uh, too prominent a role in things. But uh, an issue or an episode, rather, like the boycott of the uh, A-Boy of the Western World, that was actually organized uh, by... On, on religious type of moral grounds by um, people like who were involved in um, University College Dublin, which was a, sort of a new Catholic university in Ireland at the time, and also uh, uh, there was an Irish language movement at the time that had the patronage of the, the churches and so on. Uh, that, that language movement it was called the Gaelic League, and it, it actually kind of uh, led that boycott and uh, 
even though Griffith had been uh, very uh, opposed to any di- idea of uh, people attempting to uh, censure literary uh, productions in the past, at that particular time, in order to keep his own publication afloat, uh, he needed to rely on um, the s- subscriptions of people who were very much tied into that uh, kind of... Uh, uh, religious movements at the time that was uh, really in effect uh, in, in uh, sympathetic towards uh, censorship uh, of literature and so on. So like that's partly um, uh, I mean people who are familiar with episodes in the life of individuals like Yeats and Joyce would know how deeply that could uh, affect people at the time. Yeats acted as, sort of as a critic of that process. Uh, James Joyce was nearly driven out of his tree by the by that type of uh, public opinion in Ireland at the time, and that was actually one of his uh, motives for emigrating. You know, mm-hmm. uh, so it was uh, an unusual time, perhaps. Uh, you know, in the, in the UK context, you'd refer to it as the Edwardian period, the 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 nineteen hundreds, nineteen hundreds, nineteen ten. At that time, there was just kind of it was there was almost like a, a moral fervor movement in in Ireland, and uh, and in fact, most of the modern day cathedrals uh, or Catholic cathedrals uh, in Ireland were all built at that time. Uh, and actually, that's actually uh, a strange way with uh, Griffith's career. Griffith was always arguing that everyone should be. Uh, supporting uh, financially or otherwise Irish nationalist causes. Instead of that, everyone was sort of just kept on pushing for uh, uh, religious causes, setting up uh, religious private schools, building cathedrals, getting Westminster to be more sympathetic towards uh, religion in general across the UK, that type of thing. And uh, Griffith uh, was never too happy about that. And, uh, but it was formed a context for his career, you know, uh, because I think people who later on, later on that he became associated with when Sinn Féin became more popular, uh, an example there would be somebody like Eamon de Valera. Uh, he very, somebody like de Valera very much came, uh, you know, sort of got into politics because of those causes. He was, he didn't become involved in, um, uh, things initially out of some kind of dogmatic or fundamentalist uh, nationalist aspire, aspiration for self-government or a nationalist revolution or anything like that. So those two kind of uh, elements of public opinion uh, coexisted, you could say, throughout uh, Griffith's lifetime. It, it, it seems that that navigation between those two is especially important in the period between, say, 1906 and 1914, because that focus, in part, seems to reflect how the impetus was with the whole Home Rule movement, what was happening in Westminster initially with the uh, victory of the Liberal Party in 1906, and then more significantly the uh, the, the, the elections in 1910, which gave the uh, Irish nationalists the, uh, the difference in terms of the balance of parliament. So it was, it, it seemed uh, in, in that, that period for, for Griffith, it was a, a, a difficult time. It seemed as though it, that his vision was less likely to be achieved and that it was more of, it was more of a struggle for him to 
keep it afloat, to keep his uh, newspapers going, to keep his, more importantly, his cause going. Yes, I think that was true. And um, the sort of a, probably a frustrating thing for Griffith at that time was that uh, in several respects, you could say he nearly made some of his uh, best political arguments at that time by focusing very much on the idea that um, the home rule cause uh, could not uh, and, be, or, and certainly was not going to uh, result in the granting of any kind of fiscal autonomies to Ireland. And Griffith really teased out that idea at the time in his writings. And, uh, he made a fairly good job at that. But at the same time, like you said, the very fact that um, the... Um, the Irish politicians in Westminster were able to uh, achieve the balance of power, say, in the House of Commons in 1910. People, that, that is what uh, caught people's attention uh, or became the subject of people's focus. And as a result, even though Griffith was making um, some very good arguments at the time, and arguments that might have grown popular at a later date, uh, they 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 didn't didn't necessarily get the audience that he might have hoped at that time. So if you're familiar with a lot of our uh, common arguments regarding 20th century Irish history, is that the outbreak of the First World War really was a big turning point because from that time onwards, uh, uh, the home rule cost was seemingly dead in the water and therefore the sort of arguments that uh, people like Arthur Griffith were making uh, started to come find their uh, find their audience and uh, became a new platform for people to mobilize on. What happens to Griffith as a political figure during the First World War? Well, on one hand, he keeps focused on uh, sustaining his publications. Uh, he set up a new journal called Nationality, uh, but. There was obviously during wartime. There's always uh, press censorship, and so Griffith's publications had a very hard time uh, keeping afloat during the First World War. And then uh, maybe a, a decisive turning point in some respects is that many of his colleagues uh, in the IRB uh, decided to take advantage of the existence of uh, a rump uh, volunteer movement in Ireland that decided not to enlist. Uh, in the British war effort when the First World War broke out. That rump volunteer movement, uh, the British government was going to suppress it, and uh, Griffith's friends in the IRB uh, decided, well, before they can do that, let's try and get the, these uh, volunteers to stage a, a nationalist rebellion. And that's why the, the 1916 Rising happened. So... Uh, at that time, uh, the same people who were behind the 1916 Rising were also uh, funding Griffith's uh, journal, but uh, Griffith wasn't directly involved in the Rising, uh, and he, but he was uh, imprisoned as a result of the Rising, and you could say once there was sort of a reaction in Ireland uh, to the fact that the rebel leaders were executed, uh, Griffith's Sinn Féin cause became the, plat- the new platform for, for people who felt a sense of outrage against the British government uh, for not only uh, executing those rebels, but also to introduce um, uh, internment without trial. Like, there was hundreds of people put in prison or 
uh, during 1916, uh, that that kind of the protest vote went to Sinn Féin, and as a result, when Griffith revived his uh, nationality publication in 1917, it had a big readership for the for the, the first time, and it's really from that time onwards that uh, the the Sinn Féin uh, party that existed for about 10 years, it only, from that time onwards, started to become uh, a successful political party. And that's what, uh, right at the, the very end of the First World War, you know, the armistice to stay and so on, that coincided with the holding of a, a, a UK-wide general election. And uh, it was in that election that uh, the Sinn Féin candidates who uh, accepted Griffith's policy of withdrawing from Westminster and unilaterally setting up an Irish parliament in Dublin, those Sinn Féin candidates won the majority of those seats. Uh, that was uh, the basis from which then uh, the effort to set up uh, an Irish parliament or government um, named Dáil Éireann uh, took place in 1919. And, and even before the uh, the general election in November 1918, uh, Griffith had already been elected to uh, the Westminster Parliament in a, in a by-election. And so he was able to... Uh, and it, it was fascinating how you tie that into the the stature that he has by virtue of being a prisoner, that it helps to uh, raise his profile even further. It, it establishes his bona fides as a Sinn Féin leader. Yes, and uh, at that time, as strange as it might seem, uh, because of the, the number of um, uh, imprisonments that had taken place in the country, that uh, it could actually serve as a, a popularity booster to, <laughs> to have served time in prison. You know, uh, the, an Irish nationalist uh, uh, spirit or movement or whatever had sort of grown strong in the country at that time. And uh, with that, uh, there was a, a lot of sympathy for um, those who had been imprisoned, and pre- particularly because they, uh, not only were people being imprisoned without trial, uh, but you could, for instance, you mentioned the case there of uh, Griffith having been elected at a, at a by-election, so he was a, a elected parliamentary representative, but he was still imprisoned without trial for simply for his political views. So uh, that that was bound to. Uh, uh, lead to a response whereby uh, people uh, decided to uh, protest very strongly about this and make very serious moves to uh, uh, make a stand for full Irish self-government. So this type of thing, um, it was hoped that not happen again. What was Griffith's role in the doll? I mean, was he uh, early on a, a, a prominent parliamentary speaker? And what role did he play in terms of setting up the Irish administration that the Dáil sought to organize? Well, he was really uh, a central figure. Um, he was initially made uh, the Minister for Home Affairs, which that uh, uh, ends in effect like uh, a minister for, uh, for justice and for uh, policing and so on. But uh, he also served as uh, the acting president of the, the Dáil Éireann Assembly. And in that capacity, uh, 
he had a, a, a role to play, a coordinating role to play, both within uh, what became the cabinet of Dalairn, and uh, he also became a spokesman for uh, its cause uh, nationally and as much as was as was possible uh, internationally. Uh, an idea that uh, uh, Griffith had, um, even at the very beginning of the Sinn Féin policy, was that it would be important to uh, uh, send Irish representatives abroad in order to get uh, international sympathy for the idea of Irish independence. So uh, one of the very first things that Griffith did uh, as acting president of the of the Dáil was to ha- uh, encourage sending of representatives of the Dáil abroad. So that was done to like France and Germany, Italy, Spain, the United States. Uh, there was even attempts to send representatives to South America. Um, some old friends of Griffith who had uh, emigrated to Canada many years before, they they formed a supporting movement and so on. So um, they, they were all kind of uh, tentative steps taken at that time uh, to try and establish uh, a profile for an Irish uh, government or state uh, in abroad or internationally uh, and Griffith was uh, you could nearly say the the key figure in uh, organising all that and um, of course Eamon de Valera who was uh, um, the, the nominal president of the Dáil at the time, he spent uh, oh nearly two years in the, the United States uh, to, for, trying to champion that same uh, policy to win international sympathy for the cause of Irish independence. Uh, and that was tied in also very much to um, uh, the way Irish politicians understood the situation. They were inclined to focus on uh, Woodrow Wilson's idea of, uh, of a League of Nations. So if Ireland could get admitted to that, uh, uh, that would be a way of um, uh, guaranteeing uh, an independent uh Identity, political identity for an Irish state. That relationship with with Emma de Valera seems to have been an especially important one. And I was wondering if you could speak to a, a bit about that relationship and uh, why it was that uh, ultimately that de Valera chose Griffith to lead the negotiating team that uh, went to uh, London in uh, 1921 to negotiate the Anglo-Irish Treaty. Right. Well, uh, as an extension of um, the type of activities I was uh, describing there a few minutes ago, uh, trying to promote an international identity or profile for uh, the Irish government to be, uh, Griffith had been made, or de Valera actually appointed uh, Griffith as the Dáil Aaron's Minister for Foreign Affairs. So in, in that capacity, uh, that, that is... Uh, an explanation, in effect, for why Griffith would be someone chosen to head uh, an attempt to negotiate from from the Irish point of view an international treaty. Uh, uh, Griffith and De Valera were, were friends, and they certainly got on quite well with each other. Um, De Valera used to say, even when he was in America, that Griffith is kind of like uh, was um, the best guide, really, for. Uh, Irish nationalists to follow at the time in terms of their 
uh, what's the best, best best policy was to take. But I think De Valera, before he had sent Griffith to London to negotiate the, the, an Anglo-Irish um, treaty, he had been involved with negotiations with uh, uh, London himself. And what uh, I think uh, one of the reasons why there was a divide in opinion uh, over uh, even the idea of an Anglo-Irish treaty was that, uh, from the Irish point of view, it was believed that if, even if uh, Britain signed an agreement that uh, seemed to grant Ireland independence, they were far from sure in light of the uh, very coercive actions Britain had taken in recent times. Uh, they were far from sure that Britain would actually honour that agreement or honour that treaty. And uh, so even though um, even though uh, De Valera had uh, attempted to negotiate a treaty himself. He had uh, the, the inkling, you could say, that um, if uh, no matter what treaty was signed, um, Britain probably would not uh, uh, abide by it. So that's actually, um, uh, like for instance, if uh, as you're probably aware, Griffith, uh, on going to London after a couple of months' negotiation, he signed uh, uh, a treaty whereby uh, the Irish government was to become uh, an Irish free state with uh, similar autonomies to those enjoyed by Canada or Australia. Uh, Griffith interpreted that as, as meaning uh, uh, effectively uh, pretty much full autonomy. Um, the realization of, of his vision going back to his early years in the nationalist movement. Yeah, well, lots of, so some people made that uh, connection between those two things. But um, an issue was is that uh, with the uh, agreement, uh, as part of the agreement, uh, one of the provisions was is that uh, there was to be sort of an interim uh, provisional government in place, and uh, it would take at least a, a year after the signing of the treaty before uh, Westminster would consider uh, giving its uh, formal consent to the treaty. So, in effect, what that situation created was that from uh, throughout the whole year of 1922, from the the, the Dáil voting in favour of the treaty at the, the beginning of January to uh, Westminster's uh, nominal acceptance of it in December uh, 22, through that whole year, uh, there was a uh, huge uncertainty whether uh, the agreement was going to go through. Like, it's almost like, uh, uh, I hate making contemporary parallels, but it's almost like people today trying to figure out well, what, what exactly what type of treaty is Britain going to negotiate with the EU now that it's left the EU. This hasn't happened before. We don't know how this is going to work. Well, in effect, during 1922, that's what the whole of Ireland was saying. And so uh, Griffith, in effect, uh, uh, and having signed the treaty, had to, he had to shoulder the responsibility for uh, trying to uh, navigate the way through that uh, uncertainty. Uh, and De Valera adopted the perspective of, well, I, I'm willing to bet this isn't going to work. Uh, you know, there's different arguments of whether uh, he was right in that or not. But it was certainly uh, 
an understandable um, situation uh, or stance for people to take at the time, simply because of the uncertainty. And, uh, of course, in addition to um, the fact that Britain had uh, uh, adopted such uh, severe coercive tactics uh, in the very recent past, another issue for people was that... um, well, Griffith argues that, uh, and he was sort of right in theory on this, that the treaty would, could grant Ireland or allow Ireland to exercise fiscal autonomies. Uh, one reason why it was liable uh, not to work that way is that Britain, of course, had included uh, or had already passed an act to bring about the partition of Ireland, uh, creating um, Northern Ireland. Uh, and why was that significant? Well, Griffith, in talking about fiscal autonomies, was uh, talking about nationalizing various institutions, nationalizing the railways, nationalizing the banks, and so on. But the problem with that was is that if uh, if the Dáil Éireann government decided to introduce those policies, that would uh, naturally bring Belfast or Northern Ireland's sort of heartland more under Dublin's economic orbit than. Uh, London's economic orbit because they had the same banking system, the same transport system, and so on. So it actually became uh, uh, Griffith's downfall in effect that uh, he was uh, arguing in public and he was actually arguing in private in, the, in his negotiations with the British government that yes, we have the right to, uh, to nationalize um, various financial institutions within Ireland uh, that. Um, very suddenly, uh, in it was the June of 1922, uh, Westminster turned around and says, no, you absolutely cannot do that. And there's no way in the world we're going to allow an Irish government to be set up that can do that. Because the, an Irish government first has to recognize uh, the, that they, they can't adopt any policies that will adversely affect the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. So Nationalizing things would have created uh, undone, nearly undone the partition um, settlement. So uh, Griffith, in effect, uh, got brushed aside, and uh, Michael Collins too, uh, uh, because of that reaction of the British government in the summer of 1922. And then a conflict broke out in Ireland right there and then. It was it's usually referred to as the Irish Civil War. Some people have been inclined to blame people like De Valera for that. For they thought the fact that he was opposing the agreement created this situation. The other argument would be is that De Valera actually kind of figured out or knew that this was, was what was going to happen. Because uh, uh, for whatever agreement that uh, Dublin signed with London, uh, it did not. Uh, it would not grant Ireland the right to disrupt London's plans uh, for uh, the economy of the UK, including Northern Ireland. So uh, that was kind of uh, Griffith's final downfall, and and he died uh, within a a week or ten days of Michael Collins uh, in August 1922. Although, uh, unlike Collins, he he didn't die as a result of the the fighting. He collapsed. Basically, he worked himself to death. Well, that that was a a, a a view that was expressed that you know Griffith had uh, worked so hard to keep the dollar and government uh, afloat 
uh, even when Britain didn't recognise it and the international community in effect didn't recognise it. It was working so hard at that for uh, over three years and suffered periods of imprisonment in there as well that he, he really that kind of uh, died of exhaustion. That may be true, but it was also rumoured at the time whether, you know, you can't pay too much attention to rumours, but it was literally a case that uh, he was, uh, he became the odd man out uh, within his own cabinet, uh, along with Collins, and the, the British cabinet were saying to Dublin that well, these guys have to have to go in effect. Uh, so from that perspective, some people thought that he was, um, you know, that he, he fell ill very suddenly, uh, was hospitalized for a month uh, before he formally dropped dead. Uh, people, some people thought there must have been some foul play involved there, but you know, with these situations, that the, uh, I guess kind of mythologies can build up around things like that. I, I didn't go into that in my own book at all. I didn't sort of, uh, uh, you know, try uh, focusing on those kind of uh, almost conspiracy theories that were at the time, but uh, certainly in, in just a plain and regular. <laughs> Party political sense, uh, it was clear, kind of, at the summer by the summer of twenty two, that uh, Griffith's kind of party political policy, the old Sinn Fein policy of taming fiscal autonomy, uh, maybe it could have been adopted a few years down the road, but it was not going to be possible to start implementing there and then, because as far as London was be concerned, it would be far too disruptive everything had to evolve on a much slower pace, you know? And and the tragedy is that he never, I mean, he didn't, you know, not only did he not achieve the, the full measure of his vision for what Ireland could become, but he, in the end, doesn't even live to see the uh, practical acquisition of, of the Irish Free State and that, that step forward. I mean, it was clearly in the cards. He knew it was going to come. But in the, he died just short of, of, of that becoming a reality. Yeah, and uh, so like the Free State was uh, sort of nominally came into being in uh, December 1922. Griffith had died uh, four months earlier. Uh, it took until, say, 1924 when, uh, until the Irish Free State was recognized by any international power. Uh, the first power to do so was the United States which was, uh, had been an aspiration of Griffith and David Era and others. Uh, it was uh, actually and then the, the same week that the, the United States recognized the Free State, which was in October 20, 1924. That was the same week that the, the, the Irish government was able to formally establish its own army uh, really on its, uh, its feet for the first time. The, the, the army that's there to this day, the, the Defence Forces it's known as, it was formally established in the, in the same week as uh, the United States recognised the Irish Free State. But, and even after that, the, the, the whole issue about um, getting a civil service on, the, on its feet within the country and so on, um, that nearly didn't, you could say, that didn't really occur to 1927 or thereabouts. So that's like nearly five years after Griffith died. So, yeah, it's, uh, that's one of the challenges really for uh, historians when they, when they look at somebody like Griffith or, or Michael Collins, they, they say, 
okay, these people were like, uh, seem to be uh, the first leaders of a, an independent Irish government, but they were actually dead uh, long before the government really got on its feet. And uh, so then when people start thinking, well, what, what was the legacy of these people? Uh, that, that becomes a, a difficult question to, to answer. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Well, uh, I've written another uh, historical study. Uh, this is just a, a short article, in effect, uh, but it's um, it's actually on the theme of uh, the uh, the attempt to establish uh, an independent uh, uh, or foreign policy for an independent Irish state. Uh, from the beginnings of the doll up until 1927. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, it's it's just a short survey, but it focuses on the ideas that people like Griffith and others, Devonair and so on, had about what kind of role would Ar- did Ireland want to play in international relations. So there's sort of a key document there that uh, that Dáil Éireann issued right at the, its inception in 1919. It was called the Message to the Free Nations of the World. Yeah, it was like a Declaration of Independence, but it actually embodied within it uh, a particular vision of uh, what, what role Irish, Ireland could play in international relations uh, and how that could be of benefit to Europe and to America, and how that differed from its ambition policy differed from the traditional uh, British foreign policy regarding Europe or even America. Uh, so it's, it's sort of teasing out the, the ideas that, um, that uh, existed in Ireland at that time regarding what, uh, what type of foreign policy an independent Irish government uh, would actually want to take. It sounds not, like, not just like an interesting article, but a very timely one as well, considering you know, what's happening today with regard to Ireland, Britain, and Europe. Maybe, but um, it's, it's, my inspiration for it was really the fact that uh, I had written the book on Griffith, and um, after I had written it and it was published, I said to myself, oh gee, I forgot to focus nearly on the, um, that, uh, the, the, the Really, the foreign policy angle and uh, the um, the fact that the I thought I didn't even I think quote from the this uh, message to the free nations of the world uh, in my book, but it really was sort of uh, uh, a key document. And uh, but it's not there hasn't been much um, written hitherto in Ireland on that type of theme, so uh, I'm not too pleased with the article. Worthwhile writing, and at the same time, uh, I would say to anyone who's uh, particularly interested in that theme, there was a, a book done um, about 10 years ago called, uh, by a woman named Bernadette Phelan, called The uh, United States Foreign Policy in Ireland from uh, 1913 to 1929. She really teases out there uh, what, uh, how the, the fortunes of the the, the Irish campaign to set up an independent foreign policy, uh, what fortunes that had in America and why America's response ultimately became the most significant one in terms of uh, uh, the Irish state being able to get on its feet. So it's uh, uh, that's an interesting subject in itself. I've barely touched on it in my article, but it's uh, a good subject. 
Sounds like it. Uh, well, Owen McGee, thank you very much for your time. I hope you have a wonderful day. Okay, thank you, Mark. Thanks very much. <laughs>